Good morning. I think I'm on now. Uh, good to be with you. Let me dismiss the children. Uh, you can go off, be discipled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as they go, uh, let me just a word uh, about something that uh, you heard Ryan pray uh, there in the midst of that prayer. Uh, Restoration Church partners with two church networks. Uh, one of those networks is uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, if you want to call it a denomination. And uh, they met this past week, uh, and we, we partner with the Southern Baptist Convention for two reasons. First reason is, is because uh, we, by our contributing alongside other 40,000 other churches, we're able to help support pastors and uh, counselors and evangelists and things get trained at seminaries that allow them to go to seminary at half price. And I'm a beneficiary of that, having graduated from Southeastern, which is a great thing. So I came out of seminary with no debt. Some of you would love to have that, wouldn't you? Um, and the other reason we partner with the SBC is because it helps uh, us fund church planners, both here and, nation- and around the world, so that they don't have to raise up money, at least the ones overseas don't. And even the ones here have a lot of help financially. And so because of those two reasons, we feel like it's a great thing to support, combined with a statement of belief. But they met this past week, there was a bit of a controversy because of some bad procedural handlings, as along with some bad leadership decisions. Uh, that had the messengers, messengers would be the members of churches just like you that go up and make decisions, they vote, which is a good thing, by the way, because you, the members of our church, get to have a voice in the convention as a whole. It wasn't handled well, and so there were some votes that happened that didn't look good, uh, but in the end, by the grace of God, we got it right, and so uh, I'm thankful for that, and so this was the resolution that was passed. I'm going to read you a part of it, um, and it's regarding white supremacy and racism, and uh, again, Uh, The Southern Baptist Convention there in Phoenix, Arizona, came out uh, in a unanimous support of this resolution. It was a unanimous support, which I'm thankful for. This is part of it. Let me read part of it to you. It says, whereas racism and white supremacy are sadly not extinct, but present all over the world in various white supremacist movements, sometimes known as white nationalism or alt-right, now therefore be it resolved that the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, decry every form of racism including alt-right white supremacy as antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be it further resolved that we denounce and repudiate white supremacy in every form of racial and ethnic hatred as of the devil. And be it further resolved that we earnestly pray both for those who advocate racist ideologies and those who who are thereby deceived that they may see their error through the light of the gospel, repent of those hatreds, and come to know the peace of of Christ through redeemed fellowship in the kingdom of God, which is established from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Resolve that we acknowledge that we still must make progress in rooting out any remaining forms of intentional or unintentional racism in our midst. So again, that resolution was passed in the majority, uh, which I'm thankful to read. Um, We're also part of the other network that we're part of is called Treasuring Christ Together. Uh, And that small little group of churches is doing some of the best work, in my opinion, in terms of pushing back racism in the United States. We're happy to be a really small part of that uh, network. Uh, You can go and read about them at tctnetwork.org. One of the ten dimensions of that network is to push back ethnic, uh, or to bring forth, I should say, to bring forth ethnic harmony. And so uh, we're thankful to be part of that. They're doing some of the greatest work. I could tell you stories, uh, but I'm not going to do that now. But they're doing some really, really, really good work in the inner city of Memphis, in the inner city of Raleigh, in some of the hard portions of the other city in Minneapolis and in Little Rock and some other places. I would encourage you to take a look at them. But 
We're thankful to be part of a gospel that believes that the gospel is good and that it is pushing back against darkness, one of which of that darkness is racism, which we hate and think is of the devil, as it says. So let me pray for us as we think about the scriptures which get us into heaven where there is definitely no racism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have spoken so clearly to us about the things that are most important. So, God, as we open up your word and continue reading through the book of Philippians, considering even today the glories of heaven, God, would you cause us to wait for our Savior, to have hope in a resurrection, and to stand firm as we wait. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after having been warned about the end of those who are opposed to the gospel, we learn today of those that love the gospel. Last week we learned about the enemies of the gospel. Today we learn about those that love the gospel. And the end of those that love the gospel, as we see, is heaven. Is heaven, a strangely neglected topic amongst Christians. Strange because it's so common in the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament are often speaking of heaven. They're often talking about the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if you were to go and read through the resurrection, you would see them talking about the resurrection in some ways more than the cross. They love to talk about the resurrection, and yet it's something that we don't talk about often in modern-day Christian circles. And so, in advance of the sermon, if you are new to the Christian faith, you're going to hear about the great hope of our faith, the resurrection of our bodies and the resurrection of the world at large even. We'll talk about that today. And so this is where all of history is headed. And so my guess is most of you have either rarely heard about the kinds of things that we will talk about today, or if you have heard about them, you've not thought about them much. And so that's the wonder of preaching through books of the Bible, is they force us to deal with things that the Bible talks about and talks about often. And so in order to to kind of set up where we're at in the text here, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, at the very end of Philippians 3, Philippians 3 verse 20. We saw three weeks ago that Paul was willing to lose it all to gain the resurrection from the dead. Two weeks ago, we saw that Paul was forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, namely the resurrection again. And then last week, we saw how, we, uh, we saw how Paul often reminded the church there in Philippi of the enemies of the gospel that were bound for destruction, the opposite of resurrection. And then, right here in the text, he goes back to the resurrection in heaven once again. He goes back to this thing he's pressing towards, the prize of paradise, heaven on earth. And so let's consider our citizenship in heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, it may be helpful to sort of think about this passage as a kind of conversation that Paul is having with another individual Christian. I was helped by the thought, nevertheless. And so imagine Paul having a conversation with another Christian. Let's call him Christian. And it goes like this. Take a look at verse 20. This is sort of how it goes. Imagine the Christian responding to the enemies of the cross. He says something like, well, if we're not not citizens of the earth, then where's our home? Paul responds, verse 20, well, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And then Christian says, well, when do we get there? And Paul says, well, we await a savior. Verse 20. Christian says, Jesus. Paul responds by saying the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Christian says, well, what will it be like when he comes? Verse 21. Well, he will transform our lowly body. Hmm. What will our bodies be like? He says back to Paul. Verse 21, to be like his glorious body. Well, how will he do that? Verse 21, well, by the power that enables him. Christian says, well, how far will that power stretch? Verse 21, he will subject all things to himself. And then Christian says, wow, well, what should we do until then? Well, my beloved brother, you should stand firm in the Lord. And Christian says, okay, and off they go. There it is. Now I can pray. We can go home. So if you're paying close attention to this passage, you can see how Paul sets the kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of the earth, as it were, what he talked about, what he just talked about. The citizens of earth against the citizens or actually for the citizens of heaven. So whereas the enemies of the cross, they're bound for destruction. That's what we saw last week. Those who are in Christ, they're bound for transformation into glory. Where the enemies of the cross serve the God of their bellies, Well, the redeemed, they serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The enemies of the cross glory in their shame. Our glory is in our Savior. Where their minds are set on earthly things, we find that our minds in Christ are set on heavenly things, namely the return of Christ, his transformation of our bodies into glorious bodies, subjecting all things to himself. And remember, Paul is doing all of this to the church of Philippi in order to encourage their unity in the gospel so that they would have their joy made complete. So let's take a look at that. So first off, what do we do as citizens of heaven? What do we do? First off, we wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we Christians rightly emphasize the work of Christ on the cross, but I think we can do so without also mentioning the resurrection, which is the most, one of the most important aspects of the story of redemption. So Christ is going to return. He's going to bring about resurrection of those that are in Christ. He's going to bring about a resurrection even of the world that is subjected to the deformity of sins. And so Christians are waiting on this day. So we're waiting on. This is the final chapter of, the, of redemption. That's why the New Testament authors can say that this is it. We're in the last days because they know the final chapter is the next one. So Christians have been waiting for this day since Christ departed. We read about that in Acts chapter 1. Those are the first words that come right after Jesus has resurrected. He's a, he tells the disciples in Acts 1.8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to spread this gospel. Uh, and after that, we see that Christ... Uh, ascends into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, the Father, and he is ruling to make all his enemies a footstool. And then as the disciples are standing there looking at Christ uh, ascending, going into heaven, an angel says to the disciples that are standing there in Acts one eleven, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And now Jesus had told that to his disciples time and again. And so here they're being reminded of again. So they, now they spread out the gospel. That's what we're doing. We're spreading the gospel and waiting that all tribes, tongues, and nations would hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then Christ will come. That's what Matthew 24 teaches. And so this is the day that we Christians wait for. We wait for our Savior. We wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just wait for the resurrection. We'll talk about that. We do. 
But we wait for our Redeemer. We wait for Him. We wait for Him. It's the Redeemer that we wait for the most. Because He, Christ, is the greatest reward. All the benefits of Christ are nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Which is why Paul says there in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await Jesus. We wait Jesus. The emphasis here is on seeing our Redeemer, seeing how He, not us, how He is going to bring about the final redemption, the final chapter. And so I wonder, friend, do you, do you, do you share Paul's longing for Jesus? Do you share that? Do you desire to not only see Christ's redemption, but do you desire to see Christ? See, there's a danger in wanting the benefits more than the benefactor. Paul here has been emphasizing the greatest reward of knowing the benefactor, of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Matter of fact, Jesus even says in John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God and knowing his son. And so waiting on his return is waiting on Jesus. Waiting on a redemption, yes, but also, most importantly, on Jesus so we can see Jesus. See, Christ will not let you treat him like a lucky rabbit's foot that you can only use to get what you really want. He won't let you treat him that way. Christ is the greatest reward of heaven. And so if you don't want Christ for Christ, then you're not going to enjoy heaven anyway. I mean, think about it this way. If I were to marry my wife just for what my wife could do for me, but not actually love my wife, how do you think that marriage would go? Not so good, right? So in the same way, we must love Christ for Christ. And so maybe this then causes you to ask, how is it one can know that you love him for him and not just for what he can do for you? Well, then I would answer that question by asking you to look at that verse there in verse 20 and ask you, do you wait on Jesus? See, Paul is teaching the church here in Philippi to eagerly wait on Jesus. So do you? It's not wrong to wait on what he will bring you. That's not wrong at all. It's not long to do that. But do you long to see him? Do you long to enjoy him? Do you long to be with him, to worship him? Do you long for your Savior? Do you long for Jesus? Do you long to spend, Jesus, spend time with Jesus, reading about Jesus, praying to Jesus, reflecting on Jesus, imagining what life with Jesus will be like? Is Christ your eternal reward? Is it? You'll know that by your waiting on him. We can look back and actually back to justification where Paul talks about justification in chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. Just take your eyes and look back up there just a little bit. You'll notice this is what Paul is saying, that the reward is Christ. Look at there in verse 7 of chapter 3, where he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of, there it is, Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so the goal, friends, of glorification is the seeing and the savoring of the glory of Christ. This is how we can determine if our faith is real. So you won't find many people when you walk the streets of D.C. that dislike Jesus. Matter of fact, my experience has been most everybody likes Jesus. They like his love, his kindness. They like the kind of promises they have. They like his healings. So it's not distinctly Christian to like Jesus for what Jesus can do for you. 
See, the difference in the Christian, in the regenerate Christian, the one that's truly been saved, is that they love Jesus for Jesus. They love Him as their reward. And so do you wait for Jesus as Lord? Or do you only love what Jesus will bring you upon His return? And so my encouragement to us would be to strain toward the goal of gaining the glory of Christ. And I realize that we've been waiting a long time to love the presence of Christ. But listen, love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never ends. See, friends, Christ taught us that there would be a delay in His coming. He told us that. He told us to keep our lamps burning, waiting for His arrival. And so while we may struggle here and there, while we may doubt, or while we may even groan from time to time, Like the psalmist, we come back to our first love, Jesus Christ, and we wait for Him. And so this is what citizens of heaven do. We wait for its King, for the Savior. But not only do we wait for our reward, we do love His gifts. Because the gifts that He brings are also in keeping with what we love about Him so much. And so secondly, while we wait for our Lord Jesus Christ, secondly, we wait for the resurrection. Wait for the resurrection. You can see there, that's exactly what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior who will transform our lowly body. And he goes on. There's the resurrection. That's what he's talking about. Paul says that we await a Savior. And then he talks about this transformation. From lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. You can see the glorious body in the return of, or in the resurrection of Christ as He's operating for 40 days. And so this is going to be done by the power, it says, that enables Him. And the power that's being referenced there is the power that the Son shares with His heavenly Father who raised Him from the dead. By that power, transformation or resurrection is coming. And we should note, too, who the resurrection is coming to. See there? We should note who it's coming to. It's not coming to everyone. It's only coming to the we of this passage. The ones that are not the enemies of the cross. The ones that do not despise the gospel by distorting it in any way. Those that love Jesus for Jesus, not just for what Jesus can do for him. The ones whose citizenship is in heaven and whose hope is in heaven, not in earthly things. They wait. We wait not only for Jesus, but for the transformation that Jesus brings them. So, for instance, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was said of him, right, that he was the first fruits. His resurrection was the first fruits, namely indicating that another resurrection was coming. His resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, is the promise, is the seal, is the preview of our own resurrection in Christ. And so again, this is the great hope of the church that Paul is referencing here. And yet amidst the day-to-day struggles of our lives, here it's easy to lose sight of this promise, isn't it? It's easier to either want to fit in in the here and now, or if we don't do that, we just simply come to live in fear. It's a testimony of our need for further sanctification that we so easily forget this promise of the new creation that awaits those of us who are in Christ. Many of you have heard me refer to this doctrine of the resurrection as something that I call the oh yeah doctrine. Because we do membership interviews here, or discussions here where we talk to people and we ask them about the gospel. And all, all the time people talk about the cross of Christ so good yes where he forgives us for our sins and then they stop 
And I say to them, you know, I can't give them the answer. And so I ask them, is there anything else that Jesus may have done? You know, and all the time they'll say, oh, yeah. And he rose from the dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's why I call it the oh, yeah, doctrine. They just leave that portion of it out. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, the resurrection has to be part of the cross because if it's not, then that means Jesus' sacrifice was no different than anybody else's. The resurrection is so beautiful. It's a first fruit of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so the reason why this is so important is because Christ did not come to start a new religion. He came to start a new creation. See, he came to begin a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. John, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus met spiritual rebirth for sure, but he also met even material or physical rebirth. And so for those that trust in the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work and his life, death, and resurrection... They not only are spiritually become a new creation, at the return of Christ, they will physically become a new creation. And this is what Paul is trying to keep in front of the church here at Philippi. He's trying to remind them of that in the midst of their disputations and sort of arrogance and things that are going on in the life of the church. The redeemed are going to receive transformed, glorified bodies that are like Christ's glorified bodies. Namely, they're fully restored. This is the final chapter of redemption. And this is not only what the redeemed waits. We also find this is what all of creation awaits. That, by the way, is what is being referenced there when Paul says in verse 21, even to subject all things to himself. He just talked about how our bodies will be resurrected and transformed, but the all things to himself would be his creation, the world that we live in, this earth, as it were. We can read about this. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 to 23. Let me read that for you. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the child pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have been the who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there we find not only the redemption of our bodies, but also the redemption of the resurrection of the earth back to the very good that God created in the very beginning. This is what we wait for in the return of Christ. Redemption. And so the same thing, I think we could say, the same thing that the whole world longs for in a way. right? Everybody longs for a kind of redemption that the world would be made right again. So Jesus Christ, he's the Lord and he's bringing that redemption, as it says there in verse 21, to subject all things to himself, his good redemption, his good restoration. That's what we wait for. That's what we long for. Christ, the Lord, promised that he would bring it. And everything that he has said has come to bear already. We have every reason to believe that he will bring this to bear. And so careful students of Scripture should not be surprised by this. Careful students of Scripture should not be surprised that God, that Christ is going to bring about this restoration. We see it in all of his ministry. 
All of his miracles, friends, were previews of the kingdom of what? Heaven. From his healing paralytics and the blind and lepers to providing food for the hungry and, of course, his rising from the dead. All of these things were meant to picture for us the thing that he talked about the most, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and he pictures the reality of the kingdom that he has purchased at the cross. He's bringing in the coming resurrection. So a kingdom, by the way, friends, that is not merely spiritual but physical, a kingdom that reforms all that sin has deformed, a kingdom that destroys the root of all of our problems and brings in the solution that none of us could ever introduce, namely how he brings in righteousness. So again, everybody on planet Earth wants this in its own way. Everybody wants to see the world fixed. They all know there's something wrong and they all want it fixed. Everybody does. Every culture, every religion, everybody in the world wants this. That's sort of basic to human nature because we all instinctively know that something's not right and we want it to be made right. And Christ is the true answer to that longing. People in the world want a better world. We want a world free of sickness and death. A world free from environmental harms and poverty. A world free from people that abuse us and governments that steal from us. A world without divorce and bitterness. No more fighting, no more exhaustion. A world that not only has all the bad things taken away, but we want a world that has all the good things fully present. A world full of people that are full of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Self-control. A world with radiant sunshine and color. A world with the best food and the best laughter. And the best relationships that any of us could ever want. Relationships so deep and abiding that marriage is not even needed because we have a kind of intimacy that goes deeper. The whole world eagerly awaits this kind of a world, both the religious and the irreligious. It's one of those universal realities. But where we differ is the way in which we see that world brought about. That's where we differ. See, the world hopes that with each passing generation, we can educate the next and eventually pass enough laws, invent enough contraptions, provide enough health care and enough jobs, and we can finally get there. We can finally have heaven. We can reach ourselves up, pull ourselves up to heaven. Their hope, in other words, is in ourselves to get to heaven. And yet it seems with each passing generation, we provide some answers, and yet we just create more problems. We don't seem to have it in us to get ourselves up to heaven. And so, friends, that's why the Christian hope is so clarifying. So clarifying. So we don't hope in ourselves to work our way up to heaven. Our hope is in heaven coming down to us. See, it's already happened once, and the answer has been secured in Christ and in His gospel. So we don't hope in ourselves. We hope in Christ to come from heaven and bring heaven down here, transforming our lowly bodies, our lowly world, back into that glorious creation that, again, God declared very good in the beginning, subjecting all things to his glorious and good rule and getting rid of those that are in opposition to his rule, uh, the rule of uh, those that are in opposition, those ones that we read about last week, the enemies of the cross, sin, Satan, and self. Christ is bringing that about through the gospel. And the enemies of the gospel, they see the gospel as the contradiction to freedom. The enemies of the gospel, they see the cross as a contradiction to freedom. But gospel-loving people see the gospel as a condition to freedom. 
as a condition to heaven. I love what Al Walter says in his book, Creation Regained, a book I would commend to you. He says, what was formed in creation has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed in Christ. That's why, friends, the social gospel does not go far enough. See, what's keeping us from heaven here on earth is not surface level changes in politics and economics or environmental protections, as important as those things are. What's wrong with the world, friends, is me and you. That's what's wrong. We have to be changed from the inside out. The sinfulness, the rebellion of humanity against the God who designed the world for his glory, that's the heart of the problem. And that's what Christ came to fix. God the Father did not send a doctor. He didn't send a professor. He didn't send a a scientist or a politician. He sent a Savior to atone for sin, who would destroy the root of all of our problems by destroying sin, by becoming sin for us. See, that's why the cross is so important. Christ became sin. His obedient life was laid up on the cross to make a blood-bought atonement for those that are in Him. And He pays for their sins on the cross. And then there, the resurrection shows that that sacrifice was received. And so all those that are in Him, through repentance and faith in His work on the cross, they too get born again. They get that new life, that resurrection. The life that they intended to have but couldn't have. But Christ made it possible to have through His sacrifice. This is the Gospel. And as Christ ascended to heaven after the resurrection, He sent the Spirit to take up residence within His own. And so those that are His witnesses, we declare this Gospel, we declare a new world order to all that we might, that they might, and we might know that there is freedom from sin and saved they can be saved to Christ, that they might enjoy Christ the King and the kingdom of heaven, which is the satisfaction of a better world that we all want. And so this is why Jesus said, drink of me and you will never thirst. Eat of me and you will never hunger, because he is the answer to all of our longings. He's the answer to our loneliness. He's the answer to our longings of a better world and a better body. He is heaven, and he is bringing heaven here on earth. And we see the glimpses of this restoration constantly in the millions of times when the church loves one another and sees that restoration becomes salt and light. That's the community of the church is that mankind out in front of time where all of this is going. In these ways, the community of the church is picturing this transformation from sin to salvation. The church is picturing lowliness to glory, brokenness to resurrection as we hold fast to Christ and His strength waiting for His return to finish the final chapter. We will see Christ return this earth and redeem the oceans and the trees. And we love those vistas, of, uh, those vistas on mountaintops and things of the like. Can you imagine what those vistas will be like in the new heavens and new earth? He will return to redeem fruits and vegetables. Man, I love a good apple. Pink lady apple. It's cold and crisp. And can you imagine what a redeemed pink lady apple is going to taste like? It's going to be so good. I mean, it already is good. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to return all things and he's going to subject them all to his glory. He will return to restore our broken, sin-ridden bodies to states of a glorified bodies. Bodies that will not fade. Bodies that will not hurt or age. 
Bodies that will never die. And so that's why we can stand over the uh, body of a saint that has passed away in Christ. And we can say with confidence, God is not done with this body. He will raise it up. And it will be used again. And it will declare the glories of Christ as it does. Transformation. A new creation. Restoration, friends, is coming. It is true. It is not a dream. It is a reality. And we see previews of it all the time in, the life of our, in our life together as a church. And it can be yours, friend, if you've not trusted in Christ. This new world order that you want to see come. The brokenness that you know that exists even in your own soul. It can come to you. If you would trust Christ. Not trust the God of your belly, but trust Him for restoration. Trust Him. Love Him. Set aside the God of your belly and look to, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one, Jesus, that God so loved that He gave. That if you would believe on Him, you would have everlasting life. He can be yours. And so join us. I would encourage you to wait for our Savior. Waiting too for the resurrection. But maybe you're asking what that looks like. How is it we wait on Him? How is it we wait on this resurrection? Well, thirdly, lastly, we stand firm in the Lord. We stand firm in the Lord. I love those descriptors there in chapter 4, verse 1. You see there, Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. That should be what it's like. You know, you heard Ryan pray about this just a moment ago. This is our family. This should be more common in the life of Christians where we're not operating remotely, but we love each other, our family, so much that when people have to move, it's hard. But as Ryan said, we get to be with each other forever. So it's just a few 30, 40, 50 years, right? We'll be back together again. It won't be long. This is the way the church should be. We should be standing firm in the Lord, looking forward to what's coming in front of us. But again, let's just kind of hash this out a little bit. What does it look like to wait on the resurrection? Again, the answer that Paul gives is standing firm in the Lord. So have an immovable confidence in the Lord. But again, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives some immediate instructions of what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord as we wait for him in his resurrection. He gives some immediate instructions. Just look down there in chapter 4, verse 2. Everything that we're going to look at. There's what it looks like. Everything that he has said before it. That's what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord and wait for him. That's what it looks like. He gives some immediate instruction. There's some church members that are arguing with each other. And he reminds them immediately. This is part of standing standing firm in the Lord. You agree with each other. That's part of what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. He tells the church just after this to rejoice in the Lord always. Always we rejoice in the Lord. And we understand more of that now. Why, don't we? Because we know what's coming. We've got hope in Christ and a resurrection and a world restored. And so whatever comes, as bad as it is, it's going to get a whole lot better. The best is always in front of us. So therefore, we can rejoice always. That's what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. Even in trials and tribulations, we can rejoice. He goes on to talk about, don't be anxious about anything. Anybody that's anxious in the room, I am sure that's probably all of us. And he says right here, don't be anxious about anything. Why? Know the peace of God. Why? Because resurrection's coming. Christ is coming. That's what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. Think about all these good things. Look down there in chapter 4, verse 8. He lists them all. Think about all these honorable, pure, commendable. Think about those kinds of things. Because all that's coming. And it's here now. And it'll be coming in full. That's what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. And so maybe I can put it like this. 
to stand firm in the Lord as we wait for Christ to return is we hope in heaven and we live like heaven. We hope in heaven and we live like heaven. Hope in heaven meaning we don't hope in our jobs. We don't hope in our relationships. We don't hope in new cities to bring about a kind of satisfaction that we know that we will only have in a heavenly city. We stop working so hard to find praise from people and buying so many things so as to make us finally feel happy. We understand that people, churches, conventions, bosses, vacations, all of them are not going to be heaven. We'll only have heaven in heaven. And so when we get news of tragedy, we weep. But we don't weep as those who have no hope. We weep knowing a better day is coming. We weep and we mourn as though it were Friday, knowing that Sunday is on its way. Our pain will not last forever. Our joy comes in the morning. That's what we're like. That's what it looks like to stand firm. And if we get good news, we still hope in heaven by knowing that it's only going to get even better. So we do. We were, we're going to have those in a few weeks. When AJ and Katie and David and Lena, they're going to get married. And those are wonderful things. We should rejoice in those good things. But we even look through those things knowing, Revelation 20, a day is going to come when we are going to be wedded with our heavenly husband. We think about we can rejoice in other good things like the birth of a child. Right? We're thankful for the birth of a child. But we even look through that and we rejoice, right? Knowing that our rebirth of our bodies is going to come. We can look through those things. Our lives together change as we picture this heavenly city, looking through the, even the good things to see what is coming. We as a church, we come to love what heaven loves. And we come to hate what heaven hates. And yes, heaven hates. That's why there is an existence of something called the lake of fire. To get rid, to purge that which is in opposition to all that is right and true and holy. We spend our money and our time in ways that value the same things heaven values. We cultivate conversations that discuss our citizenship in heaven as much or more as the kind of conversations that sound like our citizenship is not here on earth, but in, in heaven. We have con- conversations where we, we can talk about sports, okay? It's okay. Talk about sports or food or whatever it is you guys talk about, right? But talk about heaven. Spend time talking about that and enjoying that together. Stop seeing our jobs as something that define us. Instead, come to see them as sandboxes that we can play in in order to build restoration into our broken world by His grace. Stop feeling like Christ's commands are obligations to fulfill. Instead, begin to see them as highways to heaven. We start seeing our spouses, begin to see our spouses as children of the Most High God if they're in Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. Start to see your spouse as someone that's going to rule the whole world in Christ. Stop seeing their ever-present failures or your own expectations of them. Serve them, even when they don't deserve it, because that's how Christ served us. We shed tears of the brokenness of our world. We get dirty, we get our hands dirty, trying to seem reform in some small or really big way, because we know that whatever work we do here in redemption, here on now, Whatever work we do now towards redemption, it's not going to fade in the day of Christ, but it will continue on. Isn't that a fun thought? So, beloved, your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. Look up and see Christ. Heaven is coming. Heaven is not ultimately some disembodied spiritual bore. It will be a material world that is full of people 
who will have transformed bodies that will be like Christ's glorified body. And so if you are going to press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, you're going to have to spend more time thinking about heaven. Remember those calls in our covenant that calls us to to live a new and a holy life. And so that's what I mean by live like heaven, namely have your lives looking like heaven and think like heaven. Cultivate conversations and a kind of thinking that understands your citizenship is there. When I walk around the streets in the Middle East, uh, I feel very much that my citizenship is not in that country. Right? That's got to be a little more cultivated than us now, today. Not to the point to where we can remove ourselves from this world, but we just be better parts of it, bringing about that reform and restoration, picturing it by God's grace and for his glory. And I think we are, it would be wise for us to remember that Paul is writing this to the church at Philippi because he knows we can forget it. We can know that we can lose sight of it. That's why it's being brought up. Randy Alcorn says this so well in his book on heaven. He says, quote, we are not told to avoid jumping off buildings because we don't battle such a temptation, right? The command to think about heaven is under attack in a hundred different ways every day. Everything militates against it. Our minds are so much set on earth that we are unaccustomed to heavenly thinking, so we must work at it, unquote. And again, that's why Paul talks about it so much in his letters. That's why he wants people that he loves so much to reflect on the glorious transformation that awaits him. This seems to be something that he understands to be the answer, an antidote to the problems that maybe the church at Philippi is beginning to address. And so it is for us. He knows that there is a day that is coming that is good, that is full of restoration and joy and everlasting life. And we, friends, must do the same. We must wait on our Lord Jesus Christ, our everlasting reward. We must wait for the resurrection and we must stand firm in the Lord Jesus, remembering to hope in heaven and to live like heaven, helping each other as we go, picturing light and life to a darkened world so that they might come to see something attractive, not in us for ourselves, but in the one that is changing us for his glory. And so this is difficult for us to do, isn't it? to think about heaven. We are inundated by the earth because we live here. And so we need prayer. We need this gathering, community groups, discipling relationships to remind us of heaven. And so as I mentioned prayer, let me pray for us now that God would help us to think on the transformation that's coming. Father, we thank you for this glorious passage, this glorious truth. That we who are in Christ, this is not the end. That a day is coming when you will make all things right. A day is coming where the prayer of Christ, your Son, will be answered. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And oh God, we long for that day. We pray, Father, you'd bring it soon. Help us, Father, to wait on Jesus. And may he be our reward. And God, may we look to the resurrection in the midst of pain and turmoil and even in delight. And God, as we do those things, I pray that you would help us to stand firm in you, knowing that strength comes from you, not in ourselves. We believe, God, that heaven will come down to earth. And may we be the kind of church, the kind of people that pictures heaven in the now. Help us, God. Forgive us where we fall short of that. Thank you for forgiveness. Cause us to lean in 
and to look for Christ our reward. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.